Got to love the band, huh? <laughs> you know, as pastor, I, uh, I get ringside seats to life stuff. And uh, sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's a little difficult. Um, some of those great elements of that are, you know, I get to go be at the hospital when families have a child and, you know, they hold that new baby for the first time and I get to watch that and that's always fun. But um, other things, you know, we invest our lives in people and over a period of time, God brings those people back around. We have a chance to kind of renew things. And uh, I was thinking about all of this during part of the song service because today uh, I got a chance to renew a friendship face-to-face with the young lady who gave my middle son, Colin, who was here last couple of weeks, so uh, gave him his first kiss. <laughs> and I wouldn't embarrass Kelsey for anything, but um, <laughs> in the three-year-old Sunday school department in the church in Edinburgh, underneath the table, my son got his first kiss at church. <laughs> it's great to have a ringside seat to the lives of people as they celebrate stuff together, weddings and those kind of things. But it's not so great when the ringside seat takes you to those hard moments, to those times in life that all of us have, but none of us want. It's those times in life when it seems like God walks up to us and stretches his arm out, arms out to us, and instead of embracing us, he grabs the rug and jerks it right out from under our feet. Those are hard times to be invested in the lives of other people. One of the things that I've learned through the years is that life has a way of delivering to us despair in massive doses. We come today, and I, I feel the need to do a little bit of pastoral care from the pulpit today. Because as a church and as communities, we have, uh, we've gone through some stuff where it seems like maybe God jerked the rug right out from under our collective feet. And there are times, I think, that as pastor, I, I need to call it what it is, and we need to step into the pain, and we need to together process some of the massive doses of despair that seem to be ours. I, I was in my office on Monday and had just a little bit of time before I was to go and uh, assist in the funeral services for one of our own, George Guidry. And I was thinking about the family and I was thinking about a scene at the hospital on Thursday evening when uh, I went up there and it was clearly the last hours of his life and watched his family as they pulled together and I watched him as he was ready to make the transition from this life into the life with Christ and what a great picture that is to watch. But still hard to walk through those days with people and and so I was in my office on Monday trying to get ready for that funeral and getting my head and my heart right for that and uh, at the same time reflecting back on the moments of the previous Sunday, the week ago today, 
when we got the word here at church during the Sunday school hour that one of our own, a 38-year-old mother, Deanna Davis, was in her last moments on this world, on this earth. And that stacked on top of the tornadoes that had gone through Granbury and Cleburne. And one of my high school friends was lived on the block in Cleburne or in that area where many houses were destroyed. And, and so I watched her deal with that pain through Facebook kind of stuff. And, uh, and so that crowded into my thinking. And within, I don't remember how many hours, we got report of another one of ours who had a friend in college, a 19-year-old girl who died. And the pain that that brings with it for people who loved her. And those are our people. Those are us as we grieve together those kind of things. And then it's no time at all after that and we find out of the hurricane, excuse me, the tornadoes that go through more Oklahoma. My brother lives in the Oklahoma City area. And for a number of hours, we couldn't get through to him. We had no clue whether or not he was involved in all of that stuff. And you, you know, so I got a, a front row seat to a family crisis in that. And was finally able to talk to him and he was fine, but people he worked with and who worked for him directly, everything was lost. And as the week progresses, we get word of a member of the life of this church who's diagnosed with cancer and another one who goes through cancer surgery to try to remove a cancerous tumor. And it was just like this week, one stacked upon another, stacked upon another, stacked upon another. Things in life that push us. How do you deal with those things? Now, I'm going to, first of all, I just want to say this, okay? Those are reminders to us. This week needs to be a reminder to us as a church that Christians don't get a free pass in this life. People around us go through stuff. And sometimes we buy into that simplistic thinking that borders on heresy that says, we, you know, we shouldn't have to go through those kind of things. We don't get a free pass. We have to deal with problems and issues too. But when that pain and despair comes in massive doses, how do we deal with that? It's important how we deal with that. We have to deal with the pain and the despair with integrity. That may sound like a strange way for me to say it, but let me, let me come back to it this way. Most of us are familiar with the book 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians, you know, I've said it from this pulpit and others, you know, that, that's the sickest church, the Corinthian church that Paul writes to in all of Scripture. And he's writing to correct all of these theological problems. But behind it all, the driving force for the Apostle Paul when he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, or the letter to them, is he says to them, in essence, your way of living is killing your witness in the community. So I want to bring us back to, first of all, I want us to kind of deal with the pain that we feel as a church, but I also want us to remember that we are called first and foremost and always to be salt and light in a dark world. Jesus gave us those as marching orders, as a description of who we are, salt and light. And the way we deal with our crises directly impacts our ability to be salt and light. I say it all that way because I'm getting ready to 
to take you through some emotion stuff, I'm afraid. And really, I'm really afraid that you're going to get mad, okay? So if you're going to shoot me, be a good shot, would you? All right? Just get it over with. Don't wound me. Just kill me. I want to take on head-on for just a moment what I call folk religion cliches. Because one of the things that seems to happen is that we have a perception of the way Christians ought to respond in situations like those that I just talked about and that I'm going to talk about as we go forward. We know how we ought to, or at least how we've been told we ought to go through those times. But the problem with that is we don't always step back from that enough to listen to what that sounds like from the chair of the person who needs it. So, for instance, when we say folk religion... Cliché says, well, just trust God through that. By the way, here's the problem with these clichés. There's enough truth in them that you can't dismiss them totally. The problem with them is that they're extremely insensitive to the other person. So when we say to somebody who's going through a struggle like this, gets off the phone, they just found out a family member has cancer, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, just trust God. But you see, we got to understand, for that person, God's on trial in a time like that. When we deal with some of the stuff that we dealt with in this building right here on Friday, God's on trial here. How could he let this happen? So to say just trust God is true enough, but it's extremely insensitive. And maybe even a little bit sheltered in thinking. Folk religion also says... Okay, now I hate this one, okay, because this is the one that I'm guilty of. Uh, I, actually, I hate them all, but especially when I find myself to be guilty. Um, it's the one where we say, I'm praying for you. Or I'll be praying for you. Now, I, I just tell you, that's a great answer. Except when it's not. Okay, It's a great answer because those people need you to pray for them. But when you get behind that, sometimes the other person is probably thinking to themselves, yeah, thanks, but how does that help me? See, I think that sometimes we slip into those things and we use these cliches because we don't know what else to say and it sounds religious and it sounds like it must help and there's a little bit of truth in it, so I'll be praying for you. And then we turn and we walk away and we feel better. It's not nearly so awkward, but we leave the other person standing there Potentially saying to themselves, uh, that doesn't help right now. So what do you do? How do you respond in the midst of the life trials that we all face? I floated this last night. By the way, for the, some of you have figured this out by now, but uh, last night I tweeted. I've always wanted to say that, so I just threw tweeted out there. Um, I tweeted, which automatically is posted to Facebook because I know you get people on both sides, some that don't do Facebook, some that do tweet, Twitter. and So uh, I use both of them just as a way sometimes to keep in contact. And so last night I used both of those mediums to try to get the word out about what we're going to be talking about today. And I did it this way. I remember exactly the way I did it, so I'll just say it the way I'm thinking it today. When you feel like life has brought you more than you should have to deal with, an excellent way to pray is, seriously, God? Are you serious? I've got to deal with this now? 
I was amazed at some of the responses that I got and the breadth of responses that I got from that particular posting. I guess I shouldn't have been amazed because it comes from me from a long time of observing church people as they try to make sense of tragedy and throwing out those cliches kind of stuff. But I was getting people coming back to me in various mediums saying to me this, I think, hey, I need this. Help me make sense of the garbage. And so when life delivers despair and pain to you in massive doses... How do you handle that? Well, let's look at this. Psalm 88. I know some of you probably out there, I really was afraid of this in the earlier service, but some of you out there going, I can't believe this guy's saying this stuff in church. Uh, well, in case you, your, your nice, comfortable religion is being challenged just a little bit here, uh, let me help you out by letting you know that this the whole thing I'm talking about comes straight out of Scripture. Psalm 88. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go there. Psalm 88 is not your typical psalm, all right? Most of the psalms we go to when people are kind of upset or we're, we're in our own lives, we need a little bit of reassurance from God, we need some of those touchy-feely kind of, okay, God, take me through this. Uh, psalm 88 is not one that you can hear very many sermons from because Psalm 88 never comes to the resolution that we look for. Even in the Psalms of disorientation, and we talked about it in some Bible studies here, where you know the psalmist comes and he says, things are not right in my life. Even in those, he comes to the end of it typically, and he resolves it, and he says, okay, God's still, you know, he, this, this is God here. Psalm 88 doesn't have the resolution. It just leaves hanging with this, God, what are you doing? Seriously, is this my lot in life? So Psalm 88, here's what we're going to find. Two basic things are going on. The psalmist is experiencing a personal internal civil war. There is that part of him that is reading the landscape of his life and he knows from what he sees that God has abandoned him, that all of this God talk that he's heard and experienced surely cannot be true because God has abandoned him and so has everybody else. We'll see that in just a moment. But what makes for a true civil war is there got to be another side of it. And so while he's looking at the landscape of his life and drawing those kind of conclusions, he also has that part of him deep down within that now is the statement of faith that says, I'm going to hold on to this. Even though the circumstances may look otherwise, I'll hold on to this. So we'll come to that. But let's look at the statements of despair first as we go. Uh, let's, this kind of breaks out into uh, a pretty simple outline. So we're going to start in verse 3 and go through verse 5 in just a second. As we do that, let me just pause and let's let you wear some of this for a second. What is the despair of your life today? And if you're sitting here and you say, you know, I really don't have anything. Things are going great. My first thing to you is, hey, good for you. I'm happy for you. But you better hold on because there's a truck coming down your road. So what is the despair? Or what are the things in your life that push you towards despair? You may be floating along pretty well right now, but if one other thing happens to you, you might just break. Let's get a good solid handle on that. Let me ask it to you this way. How bad would it need to get in your life for you to go to God with complaints? I, I want to I push this real quick before we get to the verses. Um, 
It's really important that we understand our ability and the need, actually, for us to be honest and transparent with God. Um, now, I have a friend, and uh, he models one of the things that happens with a lot of us, and that is that we kind of slip things into our language and in in the way we talk, and before we know it, it becomes just part of the way we talk, and we don't really recognize it. It's just part of the language that we use. For instance, you really want to be, you want to drive yourself crazy? Sit and listen to somebody and count how many times they use the word, uh, in a sentence or as they talk. Now, don't do it today, um, okay? It'll drive you nuts, but the speaker doesn't even get it, right? This friend of mine, um, this friend of mine fell into the habit of saying, I'm going to be honest with you. All right, now, for a while, that didn't bother me. Then I started thinking, wait a minute. He said that three minutes ago. He says it now. Do I need to, do I need to be worried when he doesn't say, now I'm going to be honest with you? Now, I know him well enough to know that he's always honest. You don't have to worry about him telling the truth or not. Um, so, but I found myself pulling from him. That's how we do. We hear people talk and we like the way they sound, so we adopt some of their stuff. So I found myself saying, I'm going to be honest. And then I'd catch myself. It's a bad thing for people to think a preacher's not being honest all the time. Right? So I'm going to tell you now, I'm going to always be honest with you. Okay? I promise you. I will not always be transparent with you. Understand the difference? If I'm talking, you can count on it. But I'm not going to tell you everything. My dad used to say this. The only reason I'm still alive is because y'all don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> tell me that's not true in, the, in your life. Would you still be alive? Would you, well, now I started going back to marriage stuff, but I won't even do that. Um, um, <clears throat> so transparency is crucial in your relationship with God. Because what happens, that folk religion that I'm talking about, and we hide behind our cliches, we start telling ourselves those things. Well, I shouldn't be upset about this. I need to trust God. And so we just kind of park it over there, and immediately we move out of transparency and honesty with God, and we start living to some expectation rather than really where we are. You can, any counselor, any good counselor will tell you this, you can never get better if you're not willing to admit you need help. And God throws open the door for us in Scripture to be honest and to be transparent with him to say, I don't like this. And so we find this war going on inside the psalmist. Verse 3, let's just pick up reading. What we find verses 3 through 5 is death talk. We get to some of those kind of theological issues I need to kind of explain very quickly. So let's just kind of hang with me. We'll start making tracks now in scripture. Verse three says, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm going to stop for a second, explain Sheol. All right. That's the term that means the grave or better said the place of the dead. You have to get this, okay? Make sure you're with me here because it's part of the whole fabric of what the psalmist is doing here. Old Testament theology, especially theology about the afterlife, is not nearly as developed as what we find in the New Testament. It was a work in progress for these Jewish people. 
And so part of it, especially at this time, what we find was a Jewish thinking level that said about the grave that when this life was over, you go there. They did not have a fully developed sense of what happens with eternity and all that kind of stuff. But they believed that once you went out of this life and into that life, it was the place of the dead. And one of the things that we find, and it's going to come up in this passage here in just a moment, that they believed not so much that God was in... um, not so much that he was incapable of operating in the realm of the dead. It's just that he didn't bother operating in the realm of the dead. Okay? So that's the picture that we find here. And he says, and listen to him, he's not dead yet. Otherwise he wouldn't be writing. Hello? All right? But he thinks that he's close. Or at least he feels That is close. Two great counseling terms to keep in mind here. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. The pit is synonymous with Sheol. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. I'll stop reading there for just a second. This is death talk. And so the psalmist in the middle of what he's saying here underscores from the very outset of this whole thing, the situation and the landscape of my life has left me feeling dead. I love what one commentator said about this. I'll quote him. He says, here is someone who has drunk a bucket full of disasters which have taken him to death's door. What is it? That takes you there. This is the grieving process that we are going through as a church. Depression that grows out of these kinds of feelings, all of those things together have a way of causing us to just want to crawl in a hole and pull the top over ourselves. We don't want to deal with stimulus. We don't want to deal with stuff that comes. And we certainly don't want to deal with a messenger with more bad news. Because we think we just might die if we get it. So death talk. But we pick up in verse 5 and we're now going to go through verse 9. So where I stopped reading it says, Like those whom you remember no more. They're cut off from your hand. You remember what I said about their belief that God is just kind of removed from the realm of the dead. He just chooses not to be involved there. And so he's explaining that. He says, I feel like I'm one of those people, like I'm one of those dead people walking around. Verse 6. Notice the subtle shift. Okay, not subtle at all. This is where now he turns and he identifies the culprit. And it's God. Verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves. And then he builds in a pause. Selah. It's a pause. It's time to stop and think. And reflect on what's just been said. And what's just been said is, pardon me for being direct. He says, God, this is your fault that I'm going through this garbage. 
That's why, because this psalmist is so honest, he could never be pastor of most Baptist churches. Because most Baptist churches know that there's a nice, proper etiquette in how you talk about God. And you certainly don't ever cast doubt on his character. But most Baptist churches have a problem with transparency and honesty, too. You're the one. You did this. You ever felt abandoned by God? You ever had situations in your life that you knew God had to be on break when that happened because he never would have let that happen to you? As we work through this, one of the things that we find is the psalmist continues to reveal to us that he is set back and set apart and pulled away from everything in his life that matters. That's part of the wording in verse 5, the first part of verse 5, like one set loose among the dead. That set loose is a term to be made free. Your translation might even say freed, but it's a picture of one like a slave who is freed from his owner or like a person who is freed from disease. But in this case, he says, I have been set free, set loose. I am free from meaningfulness in my life. I'm as good as dead. One of the cruelest cuts is that of depression that enforces isolation. You know, one of the greatest Baptist preachers of all time defied typical Baptist positioning. Typical Baptist positioning said, and even in some circles continues to say, that Christians should never be depressed. Um, The theological term for that is baloney. All right? Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptists, but some say the greatest Baptist preacher of all time. Now, that's a mouthful there because there's been some really good ones. But he is the one who suffered from depression so badly that he said there are dungeons beneath the castles of despair. Let me tell you something. Depression is a very real thing. I, this came through to me. That's probably appropriate. Uh, maybe, maybe not that some of our folks from Edinburgh are here today because I want to use... Um, a, uh, an example from a preaching series that I did in Edinburgh at one time. Now there, different from here, we had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night services, full-blown services, Bible studies, that kind of thing. And uh, so I've been on vacation for two years since I got here. <clears throat> There's the lightning shot. Um, so as I first became pastor there, I decided, okay, I had to decide, how am I going to do this? Three different services, what do I want to do on preaching schedules? And I decided it would be a great thing if I could just preach my way through the Old Testament. Um, and so I started with the book of Genesis. And it took me two years to preach the book of Genesis and two years to preach the book of Exodus. And I decided that maybe I wouldn't get through the whole Old Testament. I'd just pick and choose. But as I was in the book of Genesis and doing a Bible study there, I got to the part of the guy uh, whose name was changed to Israel. You remember what his name was before that? Bible trivia time, that was Jacob, okay? So God changed his name to Israel. How many sons did he have? This is why I brought that up. How many sons did he have? The 12 children, 12 sons of Israel. Okay, so 
I decided when I got there, I started looking at it. Now, we've got some real counselors in our church, so here's a Bible study for you all to do. I started working my way through the life of Jacob slash Israel and his dealings with his kids and dealings with himself, and it started kind of emerging for me that here's a guy who seems to have suffered from clinical depression. And so, as I studied and I started pulling Bible studies together, that theme rose to the top. And so I started dealing with that. And as I did that, I started getting people from church who would come to me after every service. In one way or another, somebody would come and say, man, I appreciate you preaching on this. You know, I've always had a problem with this. Or I've always had people say, you know, you should, or, you know I'm on medication. And Christians tell me I shouldn't be doing it. I should just trust God more. Folk religious cliché. And some of the heroes of our faith had real issues. And those real issues took them to the throne room of God and they shook their finger in God's face one way or another and said, you did it. And that makes us real uncomfortable. I hadn't figured out why it makes us real uncomfortable. Except that I think that maybe we, I want to be kind to us here. Maybe we feel like we need to protect God's integrity. And surely God would never do this. But see, then we're trying to make him in our image rather than let him be who he is and made us in his image. So I started working through this stuff on depression. I started realizing that churches are full of people who are depressed because the landscape of their life says, I can't make sense of this. And well-meaning Christian people say, that's not God's problem, that's your problem. And they don't know what to do with that. And by the way, the world on the outside looks at how we respond to these things. And they go, I don't need any of that. So what do you do with the pain? When you're the one locked alone in isolation like the psalmist was, what do you do with that? But look quickly at what he does with the next step. Have have you noticed, by the way, yet in this that we've been reading that he's not pulling any punches with God? That's a pretty good lesson for us. So in verses 10 through 12, let's read and see what else he says. Did I get all the way through verse 9? Oh, well, let's pick up verse 10. Now he moves to the questioning phase. Picture, if you will, the psalmist now puts God on trial. And he begins to drill him with questions. By the way, these are rhetorical questions. They're already answered in his mind. The answer is no. And he says, do you work wonders for the dead? Remember what I said about their theology earlier? And God has chosen not to be involved there. And so his answer is no. You don't work. You don't do anything to help the dead people. The implication is I'm dying here and you're not helping me. Next statement. Do the departed rise up to praise you? And he builds another one of those pauses in there. It's almost like he's waiting for God to defend himself. Verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Another synonym for Sheol at this point? No. A thousand times no, the psalmist answers. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. Alone, in the dark, and God's on trial. How have you dealt 
with those desperate times of your life. When it seemed that God jerked the rug out from under your feet. Maybe it's not today. But somewhere in the back, you know that you went through something and you did the best you could to make sense of it and people, Christian people tried to help you get through it and you finally reached a point where you were kind of stable in there and uh, at least enough to be able to move forward. But, but even today, you know that it lingers out there and it lurks out there and it's always in danger of coming to the front of your thinking and your living. And you're afraid of that because it makes God look bad. Be honest and be transparent with him. We have good pattern for that in this passage here. So we jump to verses 13 to 18. And he says, let's start in verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Do you hear the torment of that? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreaded or dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. I'm all alone and it's your fault. And then the whole thing is captured in a single word. Darkness, he says, my companions have become darkness. Years ago, lived in New Mexico in the city of Hobbs, New Mexico. If you're on your way to nowhere in particular, you will go through Hobbs. Don't stop. An hour and a half from Hobbs, New Mexico is a place you've probably heard of, Carlsbad, New Mexico. Carlsbad's famous for their caverns. And I'd been to the caverns a couple of times as a kid and even again as an adult. And, um, you know, I'd been there, done that, didn't need to go back kind of thing. So when people in Hobbs started saying, hey, you need to take those kids, especially junior high kids. I was a youth minister at the time. You need to take those kids over to the caverns in Carlsbad. I was thinking, I don't think so. And I said it that way to somebody. I said, no, no, you don't understand. There's a place over there called the New Cave. Most people know about Carlsbad Caverns, the big hole in the ground where you walk forever and it's got, you know, uh, asphalt walkways and railings to hold on to and lights everywhere so you can see and all that stuff. Uh, but the new cave was not that. It was not a new cave. It was just a new found cave, a newly found cave. And so uh, you had to make an appointment to take a group over there and they would assign a park ranger to you and you had to drive, you had to bring water, you had to bring flashlights because you had to hike from the parking area all the way up to where the hole in the ground started and then you had to hike down and there weren't those walkways and no lights and nothing and we got down in there and the guy told us before we started, he said, all of you got to stay together. Do not get separated because if you get separated in there and your light goes out, you're in trouble. And we started walking down in this hole in the ground. The bat guano smell understand guano? Ammonia. Just think that, okay? It was, it was horrible. And so we start walking down and it's cold because it's deep. And our senses are just being assaulted by darkness and the smell and all of those things. 
And we get to the bottom as we're all down there. He said, now everybody get close. Everybody stand real close together and turn your lights off. And when we did that, it was the darkest dark I have ever experienced. I knew people were standing next to me. I could feel them, but I couldn't see them. I'd always heard that it's so dark that you can't see out. I mean, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And so I put my hand in front of my face. Couldn't see it. You know how I knew it was there? I got it close enough to hit my nose. I couldn't see it. When the psalmist gets to the end of the whole thing, when we expect resolution, he says, darkness is all that's left. You ever feel alone like that? So let me resolve it. I said it was a struggle, and my time's up. That's okay, because this is the shortest part of the whole thing now that I have. Let's go back, and let's look at what he says. The part of him that wrestles, the thing that he holds on to in the midst of all of the landscape of his life that says this is wrong, and it's God's fault. Listen to what he says in verses 1 and 2. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation. Now, just stop. Full stop. Focus in for a second. We know what he's about to say. But he begins with a statement of faith. Oh, Lord, you are my ruler. That's what Lord means. Master, in the middle of all of this, when you're the one doing me wrong, you are still my boss. Oh, Lord. And then he takes it another step, the God of my salvation. It's not just God of salvation. I would have expected him to say, you who save others. But he makes a statement of faith. I'm going to hold to this. You are God of my salvation. I cry out day and night before you. In other words, this is a continual thing. I will not let this stop, this crying out. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, another one of those things that pops up that reveals that part of his faith and the struggle that's there. He says uh, in verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread my hands out. To you. Every day. It gets worse and worse. And I get a loner and a loner. But I'm not stopping. In verse 13 he says. But I. O Lord. Cry to you. In the morning. My prayer comes before you. Same guy quoted earlier said this, here is one who prays and keeps on praying while everything in his life screams out against his belief that there is a God who delivers. Where would you go except to the Lord? You know, really, that's, that's the question of the hour for me. And this week I sat and I have images that are burned into my thinking. These are images that have gotten me, woken me up in the middle of the night and I'm not able to go back to sleep. One of those, all the the tornadoes in, in Oklahoma. I can't get past the image of children who were pulled into a school area that was supposed to be a safe zone and they survived the tornado but they died from drowning. I cannot get that out of my head. And where is God in that? A child who has to walk up at the front of a church building and say goodbye to a mother whose time came way before what we thought should have come. What's going on with that? 
But the reality of it for me through the whole week has been this. I don't know where else I take my pain. Except to a God who has proven himself for such a long period of time in my life. Where would I go except to him? Yes, today is dark and yes, today is alone. But I don't have anywhere else to go. I used to serve with a guy who did music. And he and his wife had some rough times in their lives. They used to sing a song about the rough times. And here was the key word, key phrase of the whole song. When it comes to your life and God and what do you do with that? It says, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. So what do you do with the pain? Why don't you park the cliches, dive into the pain, and see what God has to say to you. Where, where else would you go? You're not going to find help in the bottom of a bottle, I promise you. Where do you go? But to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know what else to do. We have this pain. You made us people with emotions. Gave us the ability to think and to process information and so much of the time in weeks like this, those things war against our faith. So just give us a glimpse of your face today. Give us a reminder of your heart. Instead of reaching for the rug, pull us close.